Well, good morning, everybody. It is a joy for me to be here in the circle with you today. And whether you are uh, finding yourself into one of these extraordinarily comfortable auditorium seats or sitting on the couch at home, we are thrilled to be together today and to be on this Advent journey. Uh, Advent means expectation. It's the awaiting. It's the hoping. It's the looking for the coming of Jesus. And I want to invite us today to think a little further about that theme. But to start us out, I just want to invite you to think back to when you were a kid. And I know some of you are already in that space right now. But were there any special traditions in your household growing up that you really associate with Christmas all the way to this day? I think back to uh, my experience as an elementary school kid. And I think one of my favorite memories of Christmas times during that era of my life was the Christmas Eve family things that we did. We would typically get together and and do a big family dinner with my grandparents. And after dinner and dessert, we would uh, make our way into the living room. And my dad would have stoked a really big fire in the fireplace. And uh, we would all be excited about the fire. We'd turn the lights down in the room and just enjoy the glow of the firelight. And my grandfather would make his way over and sit down in the big yellow, floral, high-backed chair next to the fireplace. And uh, he would sit down there, and, and, and we kids, we would gather around at his feet on the carpet, sitting uh, cross-legged style in anticipation, as my grandfather would pull out a dog-eared old book. And he would open up the book, and as we waited, he would read to us the Christmas story. And it would go like this. "'Twas the night before Christmas, (laughs) when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a You know it. You've read that story, I take it. Chances are, you also know, that isn't really the real Christmas story. But you know, honestly, as I think back upon that moment, I am still glad that that was part of our family rhythm. Because even though that wasn't the real story, it pointed us, in a sense, towards the true story itself. Uh, As a kid, I, I, I maybe couldn't yet fully absorb the significance of what God did at Christmas. But I think that story prepared me in some sense to take in the idea that just as I had this longing for the coming of old Saint Nick who would come down the chimney and surprise everybody on Christmas morning, that that there was an even greater someone out there who, who was wanting to enter into the life of our family and into my own heart. And long ago, that great God came from the infinite north in a sense and squeezed himself down the chimney between eternity and time and emerged soot-soaked into the life of an ordinary family in order to share amazing gifts. And twas the night before Christmas, in some small way, prepared me to understand that vastly greater story. When I think about it, I realize that there are a lot of stories that circulate during this time of the year that can provide that kind of help to us, in a sense, that can awaken us to the bigger and bigger story. 
Uh, we see a lot of these stories rolling across the screens of our time in this particular time of the year. Hollywood, I think, often gets its most popular and enduring themes from the Bible story itself. And for some people, I think, that real story, and that's R-E-E-L, those movie stories, uh, never really ever link them properly to the to the real story, to the true Christmas story. I think, uh, you know, as much as I have enjoyed this movie through the years, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation doesn't really take me to the real story. Um, you know, it, it, the, the, the kind of picture that it gives us of the obsessive ways that we sometimes get caught up in the materialism and the decorations of Christmas and the family struggles and squabbles and the, the sort of uh, thin kind of resolution that that movie provides. I mean, it's not, it's not all that harmful, but it doesn't really take me to the true depths of Christmas. Sometimes the real story can replace the real story, in a sense. And, and, and for some people, Christmas can become a, a, about these much lesser stories. You know, it's about the Grinch and Rudolph and, and uh, Frosty the Snowman and, and that kind of thing. Again, harmless, but not good replacements for the robust, wondrous, true story of Christmas. But there are certain movie reels which, whether by accident or intention, do take us a whole lot closer to the meaning of the real thing, uh, to take us to what happened actually in Bethlehem long ago. And so this month, we're actually taking a look at a few of those particular movies uh, as, as a way of, of thinking in fresh terms about the wonder of what God actually did at Christmas. In fact, we're using these stories because they will provide you perhaps with the tools, the images, the storylines that, that, that you can uh, take uh, as means of explaining to the people that you know and love out in the world who may not do church on a regular basis what Christmas really is all about. So take the first of those stories, if I may, or the second, last week we looked at Charlie Brown's Christmas. We're gonna look today at Home Alone. And I'm talking about the classic version with Macaulay Culkin, not, not some of the remakes. Uh, we want to think together about that movie, Home Alone. How many of you have actually seen the original? Okay, you are an American. You've truly been in this country. Great. Well, if you've somehow missed the story or haven't seen it for quite a while, it is the tale of Kevin McAllister, who is the youngest child of a great big Irish uh, family, the McAllister family, and it is set right here in Chicago. In fact, it was filmed in Winnetka and Oak Park. And, and as you may know this story, Kevin gets left behind. Uh, he uh, is fast asleep when his family is going through the, the machinations and the chaos, the messiness of, of rushing off to O'Hare to go on a European holiday at Christmas time. At first, um, uh, Kevin is, is surprised by what happened. In fact, the iconic picture is, you know, as he re realizes he's been left home alone. But then, as he sits in this, uh, in this place, he actually becomes somewhat pleased by the fact he's been left by himself. Because he can pretty much now 
eat anything or do anything he wants. There's no mom or dad there to correct him. There's no older siblings there to, to be capping on him and harassing him as they had been before. And he thinks, this is a pretty good deal being home alone until it isn't. Until things start happening that tell him maybe this isn't the best way of life. As you may know, there are these marauders in the neighborhood, these bad guys in the neighborhood, and they discover that this kid is home by himself, and they're using the, 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 the trips that people are taking during the holiday time to raid homes, and they see this home as a target, and they begin to come after uh, Kevin and the possessions of that house. And it, he is ingenious, of course, and that's where a lot of the humor of the movie comes from, as he thinks of all of these, these crazy booby traps to... to uh, to push back against um, these thieves. But if you really think about it and imagine yourself as a kid in that kind of a situation or you imagine your own kids in that kind of a situation, it wouldn't be funny. It would be really scary to have people coming out after you when you're in a vulnerable place in life. Eventually, Kevin starts to think less happily about the experience of being by himself. And, and, and being home alone turns to being actually truly lonely and then to noticing the goodness of being part of a community or a family. He, he goes to a church and he sings, sees a choir together and he knows he doesn't have those kinds of connections. And he, he feels a certain sense of longing about that kind of circle of love. Even if it was an imperfect family he had, he realized, man, I had it, I had it good when they were here. And he wistfully watches other kids who have a circle like that. And he he aches over the plight of this uh, lonely old neighbor across the street who's estranged from his family at Christmas time. And at one point, when Kevin has wandered into this little church in town, and he's found that old neighbor also similarly drawn to that place, that sacred place, that community of faith, he gets into a conversation with the old man, you may recall this, that's deeply honest and vulnerable. You know, I've been kind of a pain lately, he says. I, I said some things that I shouldn't have. I haven't been really all that good this year. I'm kind of upset about it because I really like my family. Even though, though sometimes I say I don't, sometimes I even think I don't. Do you get that? He asks the old man. I think so, the man replies. How you feel about your family is a complicated thing. Isn't that true? How we feel about our families is a complicated thing. And the man continues, deep down though, you'll always love them. You, you can forget sometimes that you love them. And you can hurt them and they can hurt you. And that's not just because you're young, Kevin, implying all of us can feel that way. All of us can do that. And all of us can. And Kevin comes to see that when you're alone, without the gift of love to warm your life, then it doesn't matter if you live in the most impressive house of all, this spectacular Winnetka home that he was uh, living in. It doesn't matter if you have all the candy in the world to eat and the toys to play with. It's not really a home without love, without authentic love, genuine community. How many people, I wonder, are feeling that truth today in a personal way? 
How many people are, are wandering around in the thronging crowds of our time and feeling alone? How many people will actually be out at the shopping center today doing the Christmas thing or going to some uh, other major event in the community and, and not a single person will stop and ask their name except maybe to check it on the credit card? How many people might even go to a church today and no one will ask to know them, to hear their story? How many of us have wealth of acquaintances, but we don't really know all about what's going on deeply in their lives right now. How many people are embedded in families like the movie McAllister's who are so busy, so anxious, coming and going and doing, that they're not even seeing the members of the family deeply, knowing their hurts and their hopes. How many of us are part of that kind of a, of a circle? Or as Kevin shares here, how many of us are feeling, you know, I have been kind of a pain lately. I said some things I shouldn't have. I don't know if the people around me know that I really do like them, even though sometimes I say I don't. Or sometimes I forget that I do. Why is it that with all of the technology we have, and we've got a lot of it, why aren't we feeling more connected? Wouldn't you think that with all the means that we have of staying in touch, we wouldn't feel quite so alone. I was reading a, an interview this week um, with a, an Australian pastor by the name of Ben Windle. And one of Windle's interesting attributes is that he is also a specialist in generational studies. And he's spent a lot of his time getting inside the mind and life experience of millennials and Gen Zers, of people in their 20s and, and teens. And, and Wendell says this in, in the interview. You want to know a secret that millennials and Gen Z know about the online world? We know something is wrong. We know something's wrong. Despite having more social interaction online than ever before, we have a loneliness epidemic, he says. And this loneliness sits on our culture like a heavy blanket. It's a social sickness. It's harming our souls. It's one of the major contributing factors to our decline in mental health. And Wendell goes on to cite a, a, a study of adult development that occurred over a 75-year period, which found that a lack of true community, and by that mean, I mean, I mean not just a lot of people around or on my follower list or my like list, but, but, but a group of people that I'm really doing life with, that I have an intimate, connected social relationship with, that the effect of, of not having that kind of, of a fabric of relationship uh, has the effect on the human body that is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day. It actually damages our health as if we were chain smoking. Wendell then says that 60% of teens and 20s self-report that, they, that they're spending too much time in front of a screen and they know it. And they don't, and they, no, they should not be doing it. They know it's not good for them, and yet they keep doing it. Many of them keep doing it. 
And 44% of Generation Z, the youngest, say they feel lonely at least some of the time, which includes 20% who say, I feel lonely a lot of the time. Now we're only seeing half of each other's faces when we're back to school. Now we're, 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 we're not seeing as many of each other in our workplaces. Now we're doing church online, many of us. What's the cumulative effect of all this on our thriving, on our sense of joy about life? I don't know if any of this matters to you. You know, it may not, and that's okay. But I want to say I know it matters a lot to God. And the reason why I know that is because I, I read this book. And in this particular book, we, we're given this, this sort of video clip. And you can, you can get this video by going to Genesis chapter 2 for yourself. And we see in this, in this clip the very first human child, in a sense, the first, very first human being walking around a home that is so spectacular, that is so beautiful and so bounteous that it beggars, you know, the beautiful homes of Chicago. It, in fact, it's a home so fabulous that historians have given it the name Paradise. And though he is in the middle of paradise, the Garden of Eden, Adam feels home alone. He feels this gap in his life. And even though God has made everything good and very good, God notices the effect. He sees what's going on in the heart of Adam. And God says, something's wrong here. It is not good for the man to be alone. Wind the video forward many, many millennia and we find another story. And this one actually gets read and told at Christmas every single year all over the planet. I bet you've seen this reel before. Luke's gospel puts it this way. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby and keeping watch over their flocks at night. You know, for years when I heard that verse read at, at Christmas time, I got the warm fuzzies. I loved that image. I felt like there was, uh, this was a romantic, idealist, idealized picture in my mind. It was a Christmas card image. I, I pictured the shepherds gathered around together. And, and there was the George Clooney shepherd, you know, and the John Legend shepherd, and the Mario Lopez shepherd, and all these really good-looking, great bone structure, perfectly trimmed beard shepherds. And these guys were having a great time out at night. Nobody was looking over their shoulders. They were having fun. They were eating and drinking and telling stories and sitting by the firelight and the stay fresh sheep were grazing in the background. It was a beautiful image. I thought, oh, I'd love to be in that circle. But that's not the real Christmas story. That's not at all what it was like. That's not what's being described in that verse. Uh, 
I, I began to read and to study the, 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 the first century world and, and, and I began to realize that shepherds were not these idealized beings that, that we see in the contemporary visions of them. In fact, when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, uh, he says this in John chapter 10. He is, he is using the word good because he needs to clarify for people. He needs that modifier because the common association with shepherd was not the word good, it was the word bad. Shepherds were the lowliest of the low in the society of that day. Shepherds spent so much time out in the field away from civilization and normal life and hanging around animals that they were commonly regarded as pretty filthy, uh, pretty lazy and pretty dishonest people. And people frequently assume they're out there grazing other people's lands. They're, when sheep are born, the lambs are born, they're stealing them for themselves and keeping the profit uh, that belongs actually to the owner of the sheep. In fact, the, the Jewish rabbis frequently instructed their congregants, don't buy anything that a shepherd tries to sell you because you can assume it's stolen. The word of a shepherd was considered so unreliable they were not allowed to testify in court. They were not permitted to serve on a jury. As a class of people, they were just disallowed. Their work made them ceremonially unclean according to religious cleanliness laws, and therefore shepherds were not welcome in worship. You wouldn't be sitting alongside of one in any of the synagogue gatherings of that day. One rabbinical commentary sums it up like this. I quote, there is no more disreputable occupation than that of a shepherd. I hope this is coming through in 4K because these are the guys that we're hearing about when the text says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And I hope you just pay attention really carefully to the language there. Notice that the word flocks and fields there is plural. Okay, this is no fire pit fraternal gathering. This isn't one big happy party that we're hearing about. No, the Bible is describing individual people. Maybe uh, uh, small groups. Uh, but, but they're isolated from one another in different fields, plural. They're wandering from place to place trying to find fresh grass and, and clean water. They're trying not to get all that close to each other so that the flocks don't get mis- mixed up with each other or, or their sheep taken by one another. Each shepherd in this story is, is sort of like the first century and much poorer version of Kevin McAllister fending off the marauders, the, the people, the, the wolves and the others that are coming to try and take what they have or maybe bodily injure them. The shepherds are people, to put it succinctly, who have no real home and who are very alone until an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And the angel said to them, do not be afraid for I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, even for you, my lonely, homeless ones, is what the angel is saying. This is good news for you, that you are seen 
You are loved, you are included, you are invited in to share the wonder of what God is doing in history now. You're going to play a part in the unfolding of God's magnificent plan to help every lonely soul find their ultimate home. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to who? To you shepherds. To you forgotten ones. He's come to you and he's Christ the Lord and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now we're going to come back to this story next week. We're going to unpack this in, in deeper measure. But I want to invite you to apply a final lens today for appreciating what's going on here. There's this scene at the end of Home Alone in which young, young Kevin McAllister wakes up on Christmas morning. Maybe you remember that scene. And he's exhausted from the battles he's been going through and he's been melancholy about being by himself and he wakes up on Christmas morning to, to blessed pandemonium. His family has remembered him and, and they've come all the way back from Europe and they come bursting through the doors and, and suddenly the house is full of all this energy and noise and, and his siblings are, are piling on him and streaming over him like puppies on top of each other and his mom and dad are enfolding him with all of the love and the delight that you could possibly imagine and Kevin is filled with great joy and he looks through the window and across the street and he sees the lonely old neighbor reconciling with his family. And as a viewer, you're watching this and there's a lump in your throat and there are tears in your eyes if you've got any kind of humanity at all and you think, yes. If only it was like this. If only there was a giant heartbeat in this universe that would unleash a movement of love that would change every life and reconcile relationships and draw people into family and community at the way that we, in the way that we so desperately need. Oh, if only it was true and not just a movie. Beloved, the message of Christmas is that it's true. There is a great love that is at work in this world. We see in the gospel story, in Luke's gospel, for one, this picture of the unexpected, undeserved gift of God coming down from heaven, his great love and the power that he holds to redeem everything. And even though we, like those shepherds, are dirty, and we're kind of smelly, and we have messed up, and we're nowhere near perfect. We are welcome in the family. We can be part of the circle of Mary, Joseph, and, and the baby. 
A child has come into this world who will reconcile all things to himself, who will make it possible for everyone to come back into relationship with God and find the power to reconcile all of our other relationships. This is the message of Christmas. God has come to put out his arms and give everyone a home that will outlast this world. The shepherds get it. And they can't hold on to this as a secret. And so we're told that when they had seen him, the baby Jesus, they spread the word concerning what had been told about this child and all who heard it were amazed. Let me ask you before we go home today or on with our day, how does this whole experience that I've been talking about, that we've been sharing here, how does it become more than just a sentimental movie to us? How does it become more than something that just bounces off of us, touches us for a moment, and then we move on with life? How does it become instead something we become part of, we enter into and, and become part of? What would it look like if we didn't just hear or view the Christmas story out there on some screen, but really came into it? How, how could we spread that gift of love that came down at Christmas and be part of this life-changing movement of God's love that Jesus initiated? Well, let me give you some ideas. For example... Who is the stranger around you whose name and story you might learn today? Will there be one person you'll reach out to today and get to know their name and story that you did not know before? Could you do that? Who is the lonely soul that you could invite into your home or into your group or to sit at some table with you in this coming week? Who is the person in your own family that you've been moving maybe too fast to really see? And how could you come alongside that person and make clear that you recognize their worth and their good heart, even if you have forgotten it, even if you've actually forsaken it? Who's the neighbor across the street that could become like family to you if you actually reached out to her or to him? Or is God inviting you to reconcile with someone? Is there a name that's coming to mind, a face of somebody you know that if God were to have his way, you'd be connected to in a deeper way again? Is God calling you to put down the screen and to really lean into a face-to-face -face relationship with someone? Is God calling you out of the online church and into the personal church if you're able to do that? How could God be calling you? Is it possible that, that this is the day that you actually say to God, like Kevin says in that church, I know I'm far from perfect, but I dare to believe that you see me and you know me, and you love me, God, and so I ask for your forgiveness.
I put my trust in Jesus and in the love that he has for me and in the love of his family for me. And today's the day, today's the day, God, that I come home to you and I'm no longer alone. If this is that day for you, tell me about it after church today. Tell it to one of the hosts online because we want to welcome you into the family and reflect on some helpful next steps with you. Beloved, every single year there is this great temptation to just view Christmas like a movie. But even the movies are inviting you. God's using even the movies to invite you closer to him and to make you a part of the life-changing movement he began when he sent out of his great love, Jesus, to be our savior. Please pray with me. God, amidst all of the noise and the comings and goings and the distractions of our time. Please help us to find the real Christmas story. And in finding it, God, to enter into it personally. And to do what we can to keep the reality of your life-changing love moving in the life of this world. For we pray these things in the name of Jesus, as together we say, Amen.